0: Hi and welcome to Tech Talks, The People and Planet Podcast. Today, I'm joined by founder of Cell and Gene Therapy business, Jason Foster. Um, jason, your your business is Ori Biotech. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, could you give us a a really sort of high level overview of what Ori does and um, the problem that you guys are tackling with the mission?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. so, Thanks for having me on. It's exciting to, to be here and have a chance to chat with you. Um, I'm not a founder of the business. I was an early employee. I think it was the second or third. I joined the founding oh, really? team, okay uh, early on. So, yeah. So I'm the CEO of Ori Biotech. And mm-hmm. Ori is really trying to bring a, ho- a whole new generation of personalized uh, medicines to patients at scale. Uh, many people don't know that we actually have cures for cancer and rare diseases. Uh, that are have been created. They are approved, really? you know, by the FDA or the MHRA or the EMA for use in patients. Um, but they're very, very complicated to make. They're very expensive, sometimes costing between half a million and four million per patient. Really? Um, and because of the complexity in making them and the costs associated with them, these products are often reserved for last line therapy. So a patient would have to go through multiple rounds of chemotherapy or a Trans, transplant of some kind, stem cell yeah. or bone marrow transplant, all very expensive, kind of very kind of harsh interventions. Yeah. Um, but this new set of modalities, cell therapy or gene therapy, have the ability uh, to potentially offer cures to patients. Um, and so the what Ori is trying to do is to create a platform by which we can make these products much more efficiently, yeah. bring them to patients more quickly, and make them for much lower cost. So Maybe a product today that costs somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000 to make might be, you know, $25,000 or $50,000 to make. uh, And that would make it potentially very cost effective to treat patients' first line therapy, you know.
0: And do you have any kind of stats or something like that that, that that shows patients that perhaps aren't able to access this sort of therapy at the moment that perhaps could?
1: So collectively, we've only been able to treat less than 2% of the patients that could potentially benefit from these. And this is only, this is really only in the Western world. This is in the US, mostly the UK, some parts of Europe. So the rest of the world, it's 0% uh, for for a lot of these places, Um, which means unfortunately the other 98% of patients have the worst outcome. These patients are very sick. They have no other options. Uh, And most of them, if not all of them will die of cancer um, if we don't treat them. So. And
0: and, and is this specific forms of cancer, types of cancer or, or, or is this across the board?
1: So the first generation of of cell therapy products have been focused in what they call liquid tumors, so blood cancers, okay, uh, known by the names leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma. Most of your audience will be familiar with those names. Yes, uh, and we've had very effective clinical effects. We even have 10-year data showing patients that are cured of cancer uh, after 10 years. Uh, so they get they get cured very quickly, but then they that that response is durable, and lasts for a long time. Um, and then this modality is being studied in all different types of cancer that you can imagine so solid tumors think like lung cancer or skin cancer uh, pancreatic cancer is very kind of uh, uh, very aggressive forms of cancer ovarian cancer there's all kinds of these other types of cancers that today don't some of them don't have any treatments really that are effective Um, some of them you can treat with traditional modalities but um it's being studied across the board. there's there's over almost three thousand clinical trials happening in cell and gene therapy today, really looking at uh, this at this approach across the board in yeah. almost every form of cancer you can think of. And even beyond, even in things like type 1 diabetes or cardiovascular disease okay. or autoimmune diseases, where there's massive patient populations, tens of millions of people uh, are are suffering from those diseases. So it has really broad applicability. And certainly the clinical data for the approved products is is incredible. It's revolutionary, you know, curing cancer and it has very great promise in some of these eras, other areas areas.
0: Crazy stats, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It's and it's, you know, we're five years into the first products being approved, you know. So and we've got massive investment going in. We've got four of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world who have who own these products and are manufacturing them. Which just show, and there's been billions of dollars of investment in trying to create the manufacturing process, but it just shows you the difficulty. You know, it's highly manual processes. It's very because biology. When we're when we're building, when we're making their uh, pharmaceuticals out of chemicals, you have the same ingredients, you use the same yeah. recipe, and you get the same result. That's GMP manufacturing for you. When we're putting a a variable input, so you're putting up your cells and my cells will behave differently your cells will behave differently depending on where you are in your d- disease progression. It's very hard to to know yeah, how this sure. how the cells need to be treated to create that therapeutic outcome that you're trying to achieve. It's just very complicated. Biology is very hard compared to to uh, to chemistry and so the there's a need for a company like Ori and others that are innovating in this space to bring novel approaches to try and try and balance this kind of personalization but at scale. How do you do something mass personalization? It's personalized yeah, just to yeah, you. Yeah. But you got to do lots of it. And we're trying to bring down the cost of goods through economies of scale. And that, that thus far, that balance hasn't been struck.
0: And, and that kind of leads on to my next question, actually, because you guys, you raised last year your Series B. Um, the headcount, I think, is uh, 70 across the U.K. and U.S. Um, but presumably, it's not all been plain sailing as, as, as business is. And what, you know, you touched on it briefly there. What what challenges have you had to to navigate to get to this point so far?
1: I mean, you can't see all the gray hair, I don't think, through, the, <laughs> th- through the, the the webcam here. But um, I mean, you know, this is my third or fourth startup, depending on how you look at it. And startups are always exciting. There's it's a roller coaster ride. Some things go well and things don't go well. And of course, the last, you know, Ori was founded in 2015. Actually, I joined in, in 2019. But over the last three or four years, you know, we faced Brexit. We faced COVID. We faced massive supply chain disruption. We're facing now 10% inflation, you know, the collapse of almost the collapse of the banking system with SVB. You know, there's been a massive amount of headwinds for the sector, uh, for early stage companies. And those are all the kind of macro challenges that kind of outside yeah. the company,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: inside the company, there's all kinds of, you know, how do you hire the right people? How do you build the right culture? How do you, you know, uh, develop your product, your platform, you know, engineering and biology coming together isn't easy. That there, there are different disciplines, there are different uh, norms. So getting those teams to, to kind of work together in partnership, um, none of this stuff is easy. So it's it's been a really exciting journey. And then, of course, you've had the kind of crash of the biotech markets and the bubble that happened in 2021, making financing incredibly difficult today. So, you know where, where we sit in 2023 and you know where we were for most of 2022 is a stark contrast to the couple of years prior to that. Um, So, you know, there there are a couple of factors out there that are making Mm -hmm. these things challenging, but we're in a good spot. As you said, we raised uh, our Series B. It closed in January 2022, so a little over a year ago. Uh, That gives us runway, you know, through early 25 uh, when we'll be commercial. You know, we'll be post commercialization then and start to generate revenues hopefully like a real business instead of just an R&D shop um and we'll start to see our platform benefiting patients you know in the clinic and in in the real world so super exciting times for us
0: and and again you you just kind of kind of touched on my next question you know what what comes next you know you, you mentioned so you think you'll be commercial by what 2025
1: uh hopefully end of 24 we'll start to deliver the first uh commercial platform to partners and customers yeah
0: sure and, and can you share any other developments to the platform itself? Have, have you got maybe uh, the first version that's ready and then you'll develop that over time?
1: Yeah. So we've announced recently, towards the end of last year, a couple uh, Lightspeed early access partners called the Leap program. So it's how do we get input from, you know, the end users, the end customers. There's really three major segments we're targeting with the platform. So to help academic researchers develop the next generation of therapies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and that set of customers has a different a set of different needs, you know, than kind of industry. So they need more flexibility. They're doing it at a very small scale, highly manual, you know, a little bit more price sensitive. They don't have big budgets to do these academic yeah, research true. projects. So there's some dynamics there that, that have to be taken into account. The second um, segment is really the the CDMO segment, the contract development and manufacturing companies that are working on behalf of therapy developers to develop these therapies and, and to bring them into the clinic and beyond, uh, and they have you know a unique set of needs themselves. And then you have the the therapy developers uh, themselves who are driving the innovation in the space. And that could range from massive, you know, um, top ten pharmaceutical companies like a Pfizer or yeah. you know, uh, Novartis was one of the pioneers in this space, Gilead. BMS has an approved product, Jensen, kind of that end of the global pharma spectrum, which is um, massive companies, all the way down to startup biotechs, like one of our partners in Scepter Bio, which is based in in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, uh, is a startup company. They've got three programs in the CAR-T, CAR-M, CAR-NK space. So you run the whole gamut in that their therapy developer side and they also have different needs even within that segment itself so really developing the the platform to be flexible enough to meet the needs of those various customers uh, is a challenge Uh, and then you know getting that expertise so we'll be placing the the mvp the beta platform with those early access partners really over the next six to nine months we'll have partners using the platform we'll have data coming off of those partnerships really to demonstrate not only that the, the platform works in our hands but also works in the hands yeah, of, of cool. partners which isn't always the case with new technologies they often work yeah, very I well know. in the hands of the people who designed them and maybe not that well in the hands of, of others so we want to de- validate you know our internal data and findings with those partners and then they'll start to look to their in-house processes and, and start to stretch the, the, uh, the experience on the platform and generate data in different cell types uh, different types of processes, uh, and even doing things like distributed manufacturing, potentially.
0: Exciting times.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, but for you, you personally, this is just your day job, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's my, um... my eighty-hour-a-week day job. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you're also a successful investor. You're uh, an NED. You've got a significant portfolio. Um, Can you give our listeners a a bit of a a high-level overview of your background?
1: Sure. Um, I I would use a successful and kind of inverted commas. (laughs) uh, uh, not 100% sure. I have a very early stage portfolio, so time will tell whether I'm a successful investor or not. But yeah, I have a portfolio of 15 companies that I've invested in over the last five years or so. Uh, I sit on the board of of four of those companies, including Ori. Um, Some are in the SAS, you know, clinician, clinician credentialing space. A company called Credentially here in the UK. Uh, there's a neurorehabilitation platform called Grippable, which helps stroke victims and others to to rehabilitate so that they can do, you know, activities of daily living. They can button their shirt or hold a spoon and all these things. So there's a wide range of technologies that I've invested. Anywhere where kind of technology and healthcare intersects is of, of massive interest to me personally. Uh, and with always this kind of theme of, you know, we can, we can spend our energies and our time and our money in lots of different ways. Uh, but working in healthcare, uh, obviously we're having a, an added benefit of seeing the benefits for others, uh, for patients and others, um, you know, who are benefiting from those, those technologies as we, as we bring them to market. So um, that's a super exciting element to, to what I do. Uh, and, you know, it helps me as kind of a wearing a bunch of hats. So as an operator with Ori, um and then, as a kind of advisor director for several other businesses that are some mostly earlier stage, they're kind of series A phase, most of them uh-huh. or, or earlier. Uh, but also, I advise some VC funds as a venture partner or strategic advisor. So those kind of three hats kind of sitting on all sides of the table of the investment table are are, are quite I think informative and, and complementary in helping me do each of those jobs a little bit better, uh, be more valuable to those companies that I've invested in be a better CEO at Ori. So yeah, super exciting time. it I think actually the kind of, we've seen now actually the, the biotech, the name biotech flip-flop into tech bio, right? So it's technology-led solutions with application in, in biology. Yeah. Um, and that is evolving as its own domain, separate from biotech, because um, we're not developing therapeutics, most of us. We're developing technologies that will help us Manipulate biology or harness the power of biology in a more kind of repeatable, reliable, lower cost way. So that's certainly what Ori is doing. But that kind of technology is being used in like cultured meats or, um, you know, environmental applications where we look at, you know, maybe bacteria or other things that can consume waste, as an example, or all kinds of other, you know, synthetic uh, types of biology applications to keep us from continuing to destroy the planet, so I think I this. Think, yeah, of... I think
0: there was something there was something recently about about um, degrading plastics using the same sort of technology, exactly. you know, you have those those huge plastic dump uh, trash in the sea and whatnot, and, you know, there's yeah. a bottle that can do that.
1: Exactly. Uh, exactly. So really exciting innovation happening in this field.
0: Sounds like you are a busy guy and and we, we spoke last time. I think I asked you where you were based. You were like, yeah, I'm, I'm on an airplane.
1: <laughs> I always um, say my family lives in London, despite my American accent. Uh, yeah. We've been we've been here for 13 years. I came over here with the last business that I that I helped build. And um, so my wife and I are American, but both my kids are British. So, I, so we sort of straddle the line somehow.
0: <laughs> um, my last question, you, you, you know, your, your career is in the, the healthcare technology space. Um, what's your take on the current situation of, of that space? You know, what are the micro or the macroeconomic factors that are playing their part? What, what do you think the future holds?
1: Well, um, I mean, I couldn't be more excited. I think we're, you know, just you know, sometimes when you describe your career in retrospect, it all sounds extremely well planned out and, and sort of thoughtful. I think, you know, there's kind of a red thread um, between some of it. But um, you know, when you're in the middle of it and you're sort of just trying to figure out which direction do I go, you know, you try and make the best yeah. decision you can with the information you've got. But, you know, looking back, I think, you know, having concentrated in healthcare for the last twenty-five years, um, I've watched it really kind of evolve in a massive way, and it's it's still, it remains one of the last bastions to not be sort of, let's call it modernized by technology. You know, there's these pockets of modernization here and there. Um, and over the last, you know, three to five years, we've seen incredible amount of innovation driven by the needs, you know, the needs around the COVID pandemic and bringing five or six vaccines to market in very yeah. quick times, you know, 18 months an unprecedented amount of regulatory innovation allowing that to happen. You know, this kind of idea of an mRNA vaccine, you know, it was a a concept, you know, 15 years ago, funded by, you know, some the US government and a couple uh, academic research labs trying to even make this a reality. And then all of a sudden it was the right technology at at the right time, you know, in the right place. So I see more and more of that. I think that's stimulated a lot of interest in this intersection, you know, this tech bio intersection Uh, and we're seeing now you know lots of money and research going into mrna being used in different applications uh, to you know treat different diseases and you know the 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 innovation is really broad you know just thinking about 60 percent of the patient healthcare records in the uk are still on paper so you think about kind of where we're at in our evolution in healthcare you know, well,
0: these stats are just mind blowing, aren't they? It is. It is. <laughs> uh,
1: and maybe that's a little bit out of a date. Out of date a couple of years, but it's it's definitely not you know ten you know? yeah. percent. So it's it's a large proportion of you know little trolleys with lots of paper files walking going around the hospital, uh, and you're just it kind of blows your mind. You know the so the healthcare has been a laggard in technology adoption, uh, and you know in order to meet the burdens the the skill shortages we have in the UK, we say there's going to be something on the order of 250,000 healthcare staff. It's going to be a shortage in the NHS. Uh, the only way to bridge the gap there, we're not going to magic up 250 doctors, yeah, 250,000 doctors and nurses. Yeah. We have to solve the problem with technology. So those kind of needs are becoming more and more acute and more and more kind of unavoidable to say, well, there's, no, there's really no other answer besides implementing technology into the system. And so I think we're in a a really interesting phase uh, of the development and adoption curve of technology within healthcare. And I think, you know, because technology is slow to, or uh, healthcare is slow to adopt, and, you know, there's some very good reasons why we built inertia into the system so that we don't move too fast. We might, people might get hurt in healthcare, but, you know, electronic batch batch records or electronic, you know, medical records, that's not gonna hurt anybody. You know, we can can understand the benefit of that. So I think we'll see the adoption of technology accelerate, over the next, let's say, twenty years, to a point where, you know, they've proven now that you know AI can actually diagnose patients better than human doctors, and yeah. of course they can. It makes perfect sense that they can, because you can have all of the information that's ever been created in in humankind and human history, and that you know large language model or that AI model can actually access it without any bias, primacy or recency bias, without anything. And just say objectively, if you gave me this these inputs, this is what I suggest the top three or four outputs might be. And then a human being can take that, you know, not waste any time on the diagnosis and say, okay, well, let's develop a care plan for this individual's needs. Yeah. And human beings are probably always gonna be better, you know, at some point tailoring whatever the suggested intervention is to that patient. Cause, you know, a, a machine can't really Empathize; they can't really understand a patient's individual situation. But there's a it's lot of about things. The early that is,
0: stage of actually cutting through all of that. Exactly.
1: There's a lot of things you I mean, up so much. It's a data. It's a data crunching exercise, right? You sit there. Yeah. The doctor You walk into the doctor's office, and they say, "Well, what's going on? You know, tell me why you're here." And you download a bunch of information from them. You know, my tooth hurts, or my back hurts, or this happened, or I've got a rash, or whatever it is. Essentially, that's a data transfer, right? I'm sure. telling you what's happening, yeah. uh, and then they process that, and they're you know, mini computer between their ears, and they spit out. Well, it could be this. It could be that. I'm going to run this test to see if I can get more data to, to kind of contribute to that that diagnosis. This is ideally suited for machine learning and other kinds of applications. And then we can allow the doctors and nurses that are so good at patient care to do those things instead of spending a lot of time on paperwork, which they do. And, and spending I, I, a lot of time like doing the, things uh, that they're not. To
0: speak to the the doctors and nurses, they would agree with that as well.
1: They would, absolutely. They, they
0: so, would much rather be doing the caring side of things than uh, the data transfer.
1: Exactly. I think everyone sort of, when you think about technology, you think about, oh, no, kind of AI is taking over the world and the robots are going to put us out of a job. And, you know, this these are yeah. kind of, I would call them augmenting technologies. It's let's let the human beings do what they're best at. And let's let the machines and the kind of models yeah, exactly. do that they're best at. And then we'll get an optimal use of both of those resources. And that's exactly what Ori's trying to do is that, you know if we manufacture these products we take the rote the you know the micropipetting from one vial to the next those kinds of tasks that aren't value added and we can automate some of those things uh, but then we let the human operators with the phd immunologists interpret those data yeah. and make the judgments to say because ultimately what we want to get is a, a safe and effective therapeutic sure. out the other side so let them do what they're good at let the machines do what they're good at and i think that. That kind of thinking will start to pervade healthcare more and more over the last, next twenty years.
0: Unbelievable! Certainly, seems like exciting times for for Ori Biotech and in the, the wider healthcare technology landscape as well. That's that's all we've got time for on this this episode. Jason, thank you so much for uh, for joining me.
1: This Thanks has been so Tech much, Talks. Having
0: me. Yeah, yeah, this has been Tech Talks, the People and Planet podcast. Um, if you like what you have heard today. Give us a, a like and subscribe to our webpage and um, stay tuned for more. Thanks again, Jason.
1: Thanks, Lee.